The Telltale Film The car took them by a forest road to another crossroads, where they entered on foot a track which was deeply rutted by wagon wheels. The sound of axes ceased. After walking for a quarter of an hour, they met a dozen men who, having finished work for the day, were returning to the villages nearby. Will this path take us to Ruteau? asked Renin, in order to open a conversation with them. No, you're turning your backs on it, said one of the men gruffly. And he went on, accompanied by his mates. Hortense and Renin stood rooted to the spot. They had recognized the butler. His cheeks and chin were shaved, but his upper lip was covered by a black mustache, evidently dyed. The eyebrows no longer met and were reduced to normal dimensions. Thus, in less than twenty hours, acting on the vague hints supplied by the bearing of a film actor, Serge Renin had touched the very heart of the tragedy by means of purely psychological arguments. Rose André is alive, he said. Otherwise, Dalbrecht would have left the country. The poor thing must be imprisoned and bound up, and he takes her some food at night. We will save her, won't we? Certainly, by keeping a watch on him, and, if necessary, but in the last resort, compelling him by force to give up his secret. They followed the woodcutter at a distance, and, on the pretext that the car needed overhauling, engaged rooms in the principal inn at Ruteau. Attached to the inn was a small café, from which they were separated by the entrance to the yard, and above which were two rooms, reached by a wooden outer staircase at one side. Dalbrecht occupied one of the rooms, and Renin took the other for his chauffeur. The next morning he learnt from Adolphe that Dalbrecht, on the previous evening, after all the lights were out, had carried down a bicycle from his room, and mounted it, and had not returned until shortly before sunrise. The bicycle tracks led Renin to the uninhabited Chateau des Landes, five miles from the village. They disappeared in a rocky path, which ran beside the park down to the Seine, opposite the Jumiège Peninsula. The next night he took up his position there. At eleven o'clock, Dalbrecht climbed a bank, scrambled over a wire fence, hid his bicycle under the branches, and moved away. It seemed impossible to follow him in the pitchy darkness on a mossy soil that muffled the sound of footsteps. Renin did not make the attempt, but at daybreak he came with his chauffeur and hunted through the park all the morning. Though the park, which covered the side of a hill and was bounded below by the river, was not very large, he found no clue which gave him any reason to suppose that Rose André was imprisoned there. He therefore went back to the village, with the firm intention of taking action that evening and employing force. This state of things cannot go on, he said to Hortense. I must rescue Rose André at all costs and save her from that ruffian's clutches. He must be made to speak. He must. Otherwise, there's a danger that we may be too late. That day was Sunday, and Dalbrecht did not go to work. He did not leave his room except for lunch and went upstairs again immediately afterwards. But at three o'clock, Renin and Hortense, who were keeping a watch on him from the inn, saw him come down the wooden staircase with his bicycle on his shoulder. Leaning it against the bottom step, he inflated the tires and fastened to the handlebar a rather bulky object wrapped in a newspaper. By Jove, muttered Renin. What's the matter? 
In front of the cafe was a small terrace bordered on the right and left by spindle trees planted in boxes, which were connected by a paling. Behind the shrubs, sitting on a bank but stooping forward so that they could see Dalbrecht through the branches, were four men. Police, said Renine. What bad luck. If those fellows take a hand, they will spoil everything. Why? On the contrary, I should have thought, yes, they will. They will put Dalbrecht out of the way. And then? Will that give us Rose André? Dalbrecht had finished his preparations. Just as he was mounting his bicycle, the detectives rose in a body, ready to make a dash for him. But Dalbrecht, though quite unconscious of their presence, changed his mind and went back to his room as though he had forgotten something. Now's the time, said Renine. I'm going to risk it. But it's a difficult situation and I have no great hopes. He went out into the yard and, at a moment when the detectives were not looking, ran up the staircase, as was only natural if he wished to give an order to his chauffeur. But he had no sooner reached the rustic balcony at the back of the house, which gave admission to the two bedrooms, that he stopped. Dalbrecht's door was open. Renine walked in. Dalbrecht stepped back, at once assuming the defensive. What do you want? Who said you could... Silence! whispered Renine with an imperious gesture. It's all up with you. What are you talking about? growled the man angrily. Lean out of your window. There are four men below on the watch for you to leave. Four detectives. Dalbrecht leant over the terrace and muttered an oath. On the watch for me? he said, turning round. What do I care? They have a warrant. He folded his arms. Shut up with your piffle. A warrant. What's that to me? Listen, said Renine, and let us waste no time. It's urgent. Your name's Dalbrecht, or at least that's the name under which you acted in The Happy Princess, and under which the police are looking for you as being the murderer of Bourguet the jeweler, the man who stole a motor car and 40,000 francs from the world's cinema company, and the man who abducted a woman at Le Havre. All this is known and proved, and here's the upshot. Four men downstairs, myself here, my chauffeur in the next room. You're done for. Do you want me to save you? Dalbrecht gave his adversary a long look. Who are you? A friend of Rose André's, said Renine. The other started and, to some extent dropping his mask, retorted, What are your conditions? Rose André, whom you have abducted and tormented, is dying in some hole or corner. Where is she? A strange thing occurred and impressed Renine. Dalbrecht's face, usually so common, was lit up by a smile that made it almost attractive. But this was only a flashing vision. The man immediately resumed his hard and impassive expression. And suppose I refuse to speak, he said. So much the worse for you, it means your arrest. I dare say. But it means the death of Rose André. Who will release her? You. You will speak now, or in an hour, or two hours hence at least. You will never have the heart to keep silent and let her die. Dalbrecht shrugged his shoulders. Then, raising his hand, he said, I swear on my life that if they arrest me, not a word will leave my lips. What then? Then save me. We will meet this evening at the entrance to the Parc des Landes and say what we have to say. Why not at once? I've spoken. Will you be there? I shall be there. Renine reflected. There was something in all this that he failed to grasp. In any case, the frightful danger that threatened Rose André dominated the whole situation, and Renine was not the man to despise this threat and to persist out of vanity in a perilous course. 
Rose Andre's life came before everything. He struck several blows on the wall of the next bedroom and called his chauffeur. Adolf, is the car ready? Yes, sir. Set her going and pull her up in front of the terrace outside the cafe, right against the boxes, so as to block the exit. As for you, he continued, addressing Dalbrek, you're to jump on your machine and, instead of making off along the road, cross the yard. At the end of the yard is a passage leading into a lane. There you will be free. But no hesitation and no blundering, else you'll get yourself nabbed. Good luck to you. He waited until the car was drawn up in accordance with his instructions, and when he reached it, he began to question his chauffeur, in order to attract the detective's attention. One of them, however, having cast a glance through the spindle trees, caught sight of Dalbrek just as he reached the bottom of the staircase. He gave the alarm and darted forward, followed by his comrades, but had to run round the car and bumped into the chauffeur, which gave Dalbrek time to mount his bicycle and cross the yard unimpeded. He thus had some seconds start. Unfortunately for him, as he was about to enter the passage at the back, a troop of boys and girls appeared, returning from Vespers. On hearing the shouts of the detectives, they spread their arms in front of the fugitive, who gave two or three lurches and ended by falling. Cries of triumph were raised. Lay hold of him! Stop him! roared the detectives as they rushed forward. Renine, seeing that the game was up, ran after the others and called out, Stop him! He came up with them just as Dalbrek, after regaining his feet, knocked one of the policemen down and leveled his revolver. Renine snatched it out of his hands, but the two other detectives, startled, had also produced their weapons. They fired. Dalbrek, hit in the leg and the chest, pitched forward and fell. Thank you, sir, said the inspector to Renine, introducing himself. We owe a lot to you. It seems to me that you've done for the fellow, said Renine. Who is he? One Dalbrek, a scoundrel for whom we were looking. Renine was beside himself. Hortense had joined him by this time, and he growled, The silly fools! Now they've killed him! Oh, it's, it's not possible. We shall see. But whether he's dead or alive, it's death to Rose Andre. How are we to trace her? And what chance have we of finding the place, some inaccessible retreat, where the poor thing is dying of misery and starvation? The detectives and peasants had moved away, bearing Dalbrek with them on an improvised stretcher. Renine, who had at first followed them in order to find out what was going to happen, changed his mind and was now standing with his eyes fixed on the ground. The fall of the bicycle had unfastened the parcel which Dalbrek had tied to the handlebar, and the newspaper had burst, revealing its contents, a tin saucepan, rusty, dented, battered and useless. What's the meaning of this? he muttered. What was the idea? He picked it up and examined it. Then he gave a grin and a click of the tongue and chuckled slowly. <laughs> Don't move an eyelash, my dear. Let all these people clear off. All this is no business of ours, is it? The troubles of police don't concern us. We're two motorists traveling for our pleasure and collecting old saucepans if we feel so inclined. He called his chauffeur. Adolf, take us to the Parc des Landes by a roundabout road. Half an hour later, they reached the sunken track and began to scramble down it on foot beside the wooded slopes. 
The Seine, which was very low at this time of day, was lapping against a little jetty, near which lay a worm-eaten, moldering boat, full of puddles of water. Renin stepped into the boat and at once began to bail out the puddles with his saucepan. He then drew the boat alongside of the jetty, helped Hortense in, and used the one oar which he slipped in a gap in the stern to work her into midstream. <laughs> I believe I'm there, he said with a laugh. The worst that can happen to us is to get our feet wet, for our craft leaks a trifle. But haven't we a saucepan? Oh, blessings on that useful utensil. Almost as soon as I set eyes upon it, I remembered that people use those articles to bail out the bottoms of leaky boats. Why, there was bound to be a boat in the lawn's woods. How was it I never thought of that? But of course Dalbrek made use of her to cross the Seine. And as she made water, he brought a saucepan. Then, Rose André, asked Hortense, is a prisoner on the other bank, on the Jumiège Peninsula. You see the famous abbey from here. They ran aground on a beach of big pebbles covered with slime. And it can't be very far away, he added. Dalbrecht did not spend the whole night running about. A towpath followed the deserted bank. Another path led away from it. They chose the second, and, passing between orchards enclosed by hedges, came to a landscape that seemed strangely familiar to them. Where had they seen that pool before, with the willows overhanging it? And where had they seen that abandoned hovel? Suddenly, both of them stopped with one accord. Oh, said Hortense, I can hardly believe my eyes. Opposite them was the white gate of a large orchard, at the back of which, among groups of old, gnarled apple trees, appeared a cottage with blue shutters, the cottage of the happy princess. Of course, cried Renine, and I ought to have known it considering that the film showed both this cottage and the forest close by. And isn't everything happening exactly as in The Happy Princess? Isn't Dalbrecht dominated by the memory of it? The house, which is certainly the one in which Rose André spent the summer, was empty. He has shut her up there. But the house you told me was in the Saint-Enferrière. Well, so are we, to the left of the river, the Eure, and the forest of Bretonne, to the right, the Seine Inferieure. But between them is the obstacle of the river, which is why I didn't connect the two. A hundred and fifty yards of water form a more effective division than dozens of miles. The gate was locked. They got through the hedge a little lower down and walked toward the house, which was screened on one side by an old wall shaggy with ivy and roofed with thatch. It seems as if there was somebody there, said Hortense. Didn't I hear the sound of a window? Listen. Someone struck a few chords on a piano. Then a voice arose, a woman's voice, softly and solemnly singing a ballad that thrilled with restrained passion. The woman's whole soul seemed to breathe itself into the melodious notes. They walked on. The wall concealed them from view, but they saw a sitting room furnished with bright wallpaper and a blue Roman carpet. The throbbing voice ceased. The piano ended with a last chord, and the singer rose and appeared framed in the window. Rose André, whispered Hortense. Well. 
said Renin, admitting his astonishment. This is the last thing I expected. Rose André, Rose André at liberty, and singing Massenet in the sitting-room of her cottage. What does it all mean? Do you understand? Yes, but it has taken me long enough. How could we have guessed? Although they had never seen her except on the screen, they had not the least doubt that this was she. It was really Rose André, or rather the happy princess, whom they had admired a few days before amidst the furniture of that very sitting-room or on the threshold of that very cottage. She was wearing the same dress, her hair was done in the same way, she had on the same bangles and necklaces as in the happy princess, and her lovely face, with its rosy cheeks and laughing eyes, bore the same look of joy and serenity. Some sound must have caught her ear, for she leaned over toward a clump of shrubs beside the cottage and whispered into the silent garden, George? George? Is that you, my darling? 